Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, and is found on page 15 in the Pew Bibles. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Please join me in prayer. Lord, as we come into your word, we thank you again that we have the freedom to do this. We thank you for what we just witnessed and what we just sang, that this land is yours, whether, whether people believe or not, whether it falls into hands of tyranny or not, you are the Lord of the lands. But Lord, we come and we ask now that you bless us one more time. Bless us as we come into your word. Because how can men preach the holy words of God? How can men and women understand the holy words of God? How can we glean anything out of this but by the Spirit alone? And so we come and we confess our deep dependence on you. We are only free if we are free in Christ. And if we are free in Christ, you've given us your Spirit. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Make him manifest in this room right now, manifest in our hearts and in our lives that we can understand what you say in your word. We go back to the most ancient of history here and there is only one who knows what happened. There is only one who knows the purpose and the point of this story. Will you speak it to us today, Lord? Will you show us what happened on the day that you came down, the day that culture began the day that you began speaking with man again. And we lift high Christ for us to show us that he is the ultimate culmination of all things. That all that we do, hear, and say can be for his glory, for the glory of the Father, for the glory of the Spirit, in the name of the Almighty. And in his name we pray, amen. Now as you are well aware Today, as we've said, and as we just observed, marks 100 years since the end of World War I. It was a terrible, it was a horrifying, it was a bloody contest, and it drew in droves of nations to fight against each other with countless cultures spilling their blood. It's so awful that, for me at least, I can't even watch documentaries over it. It's just terrible to think of what people have gone through. But the problem of our world and of our society, I think, is that it's normal for us to think of war. It's normal to think of conquest. When we pray for the persecuted church, in a lot of respects, it's not surprising to us. We know it exists. 
We know what happens. We become numb to it in a sense. But when we stop and think of the motivation and the reasons for war, I think it can be really hard to conceive why we fight. Um, It's kind of a side story, but I remember when I was about 10, two of my uncles were fighting, and I remember just thinking, if I could get them in a room, I could just explain to them to just love each other. (laughs) Um, I I think we all kind of have that understanding. Why do we go to war? Why do these things happen? This seems absurd. Don't we have a common goal of survival? Don't we know we're all going to die? Why don't leaders want to bring peace for people? Because at the end of the day, you're going to die. What's the point? Memory doesn't do you any good in the grave. We may want a lasting legacy. You're not around to enjoy it. Now, maybe that seems naive, but as I prepared this sermon, that really got me thinking because our passage really details a time when the opposite of war was a problem. You see, in the Tower of Babel, we come to a time when nothing separates mankind, when nothing will drive a wedge between them except God, when war won't break out against them. And we look at that and we think that might seem ideal. If only we could have peace in our time, if only we could have that around the world. But the problem is that they trusted themselves more than they trusted God. And so what they did is they found themselves, maybe not in a war with man, but they found themselves in a war with God. And so here at the Tower of Babel, in this ancient history, the people expressly stand against their creator. They build a tower to reach the heavens, and it becomes a dwelling place for their false gods. It's perhaps the only time in human history that mankind was united in a common cause. But as we'll see, that common cause sought the heavens, but it led them straight to the gates of hell. And so God judged them, and he caused them to be separated and to be spread. But what we want to focus on today is not that war. We don't want to focus today on the negative effects of that. But what we want to focus today is how God's curse ultimately became our blessing. Because what it did, I'm assuming this church is mostly Dutch, but it bought us culture. The church is so cultured. It bought us languages. It bought us different nations. It gave us different tastes and traditions. But ultimately, and most importantly, what the Tower of Babel did was to pave the way to bring us a Savior. And so let's see what happened on the day that God came down, as he says, to discover that God scattering the people at Babel paved the way to bring in all cultures, all tongues, and all nations under one common king, Christ Jesus. So as we jump into our passage, you'll notice that it's really broken up into two different ways. Verses 1 to 4 details mankind, and then 5 through 9 details God. He doesn't make an appearance until then, but before we come and we look at um, how mankind is reacting at this time and how they're living their lives, we have to look at the history behind this. And there's one vital piece of history that we need to know. And that is that this occurs right after the flood of Noah's time, And it is spearheaded by what's called the cultural mandate. So when Adam and Eve are alone in the Garden of Eden together, before, obviously, the fall of mankind, God gives them a command. It's a command that we call the cultural mandate or the creation mandate, and it comes from Genesis 1, 26, 27, and especially 28. There God says to Adam and Eve, don't stay in the garden. Don't make your life here. Go. Be fruitful multiply, spread, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
But we find out throughout Genesis 3 until about Genesis 6 that that's not the case. They don't go out and do it. Rather, man turns evil. They band together. We see the line of Cain begin to build cities where they can congregate. But God wants them to spread across the earth. And so because every inclination of man's heart is fully evil, the Lord sends a flood. And what it does is it wipes out everything on earth except for Noah, his family, and the animals in the ark. And what's so fascinating is that when the floodwaters recede and Noah steps off the ark, God repeats to him a command. He says, Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He gives the cultural mandate again, and what it shows us is that that's obviously God's plan for us in this life. After all, he gave us a sprawling earth to use. He didn't just create a garden, he created a world. He wants us to grow it, to cultivate it, to conquer it, to discover the vastness of God in the vastness of nature. But when we come to Genesis 11 and our passage, that's again the undergirding. That's what God has just told them to do, but we find out that people have actually done the opposite. Why this is such a bad thing is not necessarily because they built the tower or because they built a city, but it's because God said, spread, go across the earth, fill it up, populate it, trust me to be your king, and they say, no, we don't want to do that, we want to stay together. And so when we come to the people here, one commentator estimates that there are 30,000 people alive in the entirety of the earth. And they're all obviously Noah's descendants, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on and so forth. But what's remarkable is that not one of them has strayed from the whole. No one has sought to make a name for themselves by building their own city and taking their children away. You see, the rest of the world is empty, but they don't care. They want to stick together. And so as soon as we start this passage, we get this very ominous warning that things are not good and things are not going, to get, not, not going to be good. And then we get a fallout from that. But the ominous warning comes right away in verse 2. Because we might think, again, remembering on war and thinking how terrible this is for mankind, we might think it's good that man sticks together. But right away in verse 2, we read that the people in their movement from Mount Ararat after the flood is eastward. And what, the, what moving east means in the scripture is that you're under God's curse. You see, it, moves, it means moving spiritually far from God. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see it in Jonah after he's done preaching to Nineveh in Jonah chapter 4. There's this east scorching wind. Or Adam and Eve, they're driven from the east, or they're driven from the garden to the east. Or Abraham, when he's called, he's called from the east into the west. And so what we see is that as mankind is moving, they may be sticking together, but they're moving further and further and further from God. And so again, we have this problem that's undergirding this whole thing. God's command is to trust him and to spread, but they say, no, we want to do the opposite. And so mankind might not be at war with each other, but they are certainly at war with God. Indeed, listen to verse 4. They say, come, let us build, a city, build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. God says, be scattered. And they say, let's clump together specifically so that we're not scattered. And to lead them in doing this, to lead them in bringing them together, they elect their own king in the place of God. It's a man named Nimrod. And we get this from Genesis 10. If you flip 
back a page in verses 8 through 12, and there we're told that he's actually the grandson of Noah, and his name signifies everything that's going on, because what the name Nimrod means is we shall rebel. And so again, the picture we get is that all of mankind is under God's curse, under his wrath, and they are, they are emblazoned across their hearts are the words, we shall rebel. They're abandoning God because they want to make a name for themselves. They don't want to trust him. And it's so fascinating that they say we want to make a name for ourselves because then we ask, if it's not with God, then who can it be? Because, again, all mankind is together, and so we're, we're led to believe that the name they want to make is among false gods. They wanted to reach the heavens. They wanted to prove their might and their strength, that nothing could divide them, nothing could conquer them. In fact, the tower that they build at the center of their city is actually called a ziggurat, which is like a temple or a dwelling place to the gods. And so you can see in that picture how it wraps around, wraps around, wraps around. That's actually a staircase. The point is that you walk up, good, so good picture, whoever picked that. Um, the point is they can walk up to the heavens and meet with the gods or the gods can come down and commune with them because at the top of this is a shrine where they worship their, their false lords. And so what they're doing, what the people are doing to add to everything else is they're making a religious center that stands against the creator as the true God. Not only that, but again, directly against this cultural mandate, they say we want this tower so that no matter where we go, we can look and see where home is, see where we can be gathered. Again, nothing's going to stand in our way of sticking together. They never want to be lost. So let's pause there and just survey the scene again and bring all of that together. So we're focusing again in verses 1 to 4 on the story of mankind, and what's happened is that God has given them one express order. Go, spread, work, trust me. But the entirety of humanity is instead saying they want to band together. God's saying it's your created purpose to go, to expand. But here in verse 4, mankind is saying that, no, we want to tower so that we don't expand and scatter. God wants to be their ruler, and they say we have no ruler except Nimrod. You see, the people have abandoned God and his word. They have stopped trusting him. And it's so exemplative of the human heart. You see, like Nimrod, again, what's in all of our hearts is the words, we shall rebel. We all are going to worship something. This is what's being shown to us in verses 1 to 4. Mankind is always moving eastward away from God. Every inclination of our hearts is always evil. And it's exemplified again in the tower that they build because it's a monument to their own strength and to their own cunning and something that we continue to do to this day. Be it the church that we think that gives us value or be it anything else that we put our hope and our trust and our lives in. Or just take my little nephew, for example, Last year when he was about six, I took him to my place um, just to spend some time with him and the roads were icy and on the way I accidentally rear-ended someone and went out and checked, everything was okay, nobody was hurt. But the second I jumped back in the truck, he said, Uncle Brian, we don't tell mom and dad, right? I have no idea what his dad is teaching him. (laughs) But at six years old, that's the first reaction. We rebel, we don't tell, we hide, we protect ourselves, right? That's what Genesis 11, 1 to 4 is showing us about all of us. That's the warning that's given to our hearts. 
You see, what, what the people wants is themselves, just like Adam and Eve. And don't be fooled to think that we're not like that because what they want isn't all that bad, is it? They want to be accepted. They want to be known. They want to be loved. They want not to be abandoned. And I think that's the heart cry of all humanity. Just look at the trends of how the world is going. Everybody is moving out of the country, or many people are moving out of the country and pouring into the cities where the people are. They don't want to be alone. They don't want to be neglected. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's easy to look at this passage and to think there's nothing really wrong with what mankind is doing. But the question underneath the action has to be, are we really trusting God? Are we doing what he wants us to do for life? Or are we taking things into our own hands? Who or what are we asking to be our Nimrod? I guarantee that we all have one. Just a few questions, maybe they resonate. Do you ever lie to get yourself ahead? Do you ever lie to protect your reputation like my nephew was so apt to do? Do you neglect the Lord in favor of extra time for yourself? Are you driven by money? Are you driven by security? Are you driven by love? Do you think your kids give you value or meaning? You can stretch this on to anything. The point is, are you looking for anything to satisfy your soul instead of God? And again, don't be fooled. These are good things. But the problem, Augustine warned us, is, that when, the, is when the good things become the one thing. You see, for people at Babel, the one thing they wanted was each other more than they wanted God. And so what's the one thing in your life? Ask yourself that. Search for it. Because as we're about to see next, in God's grace, he will stop at nothing to take it away. With that, come to verse 5 in the second part of the passage because, again, here we get the first mention of the Lord. Again, before this, it's all about the people, and the Lord has remained conspicuously absent. If you go through Genesis, the amount of times where it says, and the word of the Lord came, and the word of the Lord came. But for some reason, this story starts off with God being quiet until suddenly we read that he takes notice of what the people are doing, and he, quote-unquote, came down to see the city. And that raises a very interesting question. That is, why does the Lord need to come down if he is everywhere? And it shows us a few things, but just the one thing we'll focus on is that it's a symbol that he has removed from mankind. Again, we're stacking up all these little details to show us that God is not with man in this work. They are alone. They are walking away from him. They are moving spiritually away from our God. Man is alone. And they're searching for something to crave the satisfying of their souls, but they don't look to God. It's again why they turn to Nimrod. It's again why they turn to making this tall, enduring tower to the heavens. Calvin says all our hearts are idol-making factories, and God having to come down shows that the people are searching for idols in anything else. Each other, Nimrod, the tower, name it. But the reason that God comes down is because he knows this. And he says, if we leave man to continue doing what they're doing, nothing is going to be impossible for them. 
And his point is not to say they're going to reach me in the heavens and they're going to find their own gods and they're going to save themselves and they're going to unseat me from the throne, but rather what he's saying is if I let them live the way they're living, no man will ever find me, no man will ever seek me, and I'll be forced, forced to destroy them again. You see, without God's intervention, no man will ever find him. And so the God who is removed from mankind is forced to come down because the people can trace their can communicate because they can relate, because they can trace their lineage, because they have a common goal. They've learned to trust themselves and each other, and they don't trust God. And so his plan for bringing mankind back to himself, as stated in Genesis 3.15, and his plan for subduing the world under his name stops with man's plan to stick together. That's what he means when he says nothing is going to be impossible for them. And so when we come across that, there's this great tension in this story. There's this great moment where we're wondering what in the world is going to happen. And it's such brilliant storytelling for Moses to show us things from God's perspective because he's just destroyed the world. And yet it didn't do anything. Mankind is no better. Mankind is evil. Mankind is still worse off. So what's going to happen? What is God going to do? Is he going to come down in anger? Is he going to come down in justice? Or is he going to come down in love? Well, we get the answer in verse 7. There he judges the people by confusing their language so they cannot understand each other and are forced to scatter. In judgment, God comes down and he rips the heart out of the family of man because suddenly everything that held them together is what drives them apart. No longer are they one, but they are many. The plans of man are immediately thwarted by this action. Nimrod is rejected, and the people are left to grope around for something else. That which they thought would give them hope and satisfaction can give it to them no longer. And what's so... It's judgment, it's a curse, it's terrible. But again, we want to focus on the beautiful aspect of this. And so what we see in this, in God's curse, is two aspects of beauty. There's two things that are great to come out of this. First, on that day, by this action, God doing this, culture is born. You see, they can no longer understand what another is saying. They think and they act differently. The building of the tower uh, becomes impossible. Man has no choice but to disband, to move across the earth, and to discover its beauty. In one act, God jumpstarts his cultural mandate again, and the separation of humanity means they can't ban under one king. They can't come together under Nimrod as, um, as they had before. They can't find their eternal hope in a city where they can be together. They can't build a tower where they'd always look up and know where home is. Suddenly, by their strength, they cannot reach the heavens, they cannot save themselves, and they're forced to look elsewhere and to develop in a different way. And so again, we see that it's judgment, but God's judgment means that the spreading of the people shows us more the richness of the Lord. Suddenly, we see different cultures and gifts, different facets of humanity that we'd never see otherwise. Just think to your own culture. Again, I'm guessing most of it is Dutch, but it is great to be Dutch. We take pride in that. We eat olibolen. It's great. Whatever your culture is, there's certain things that you probably love about it, certain aspects of the history that you love and that you Um, understand, make you distinctly you. 
But also, if you travel, if you've ever traveled, you'll know that the wonders of other cultures open your world like you never thought possible. We get stuck in our own rot, in our own traditions, in our own way of thinking, in the guilt trip our parents give us for Dutch. And then suddenly we go out and we discover that there's a whole world beyond us. Things are not the way that we always thought that they were. There's beauty beyond us. There's painting beyond us. There's dancing that we never discovered. There's taste that we never fathomed could be possible. This is what God is doing here. He's starting his cultural mandate again to show us the richness of God by spreading mankind. Suddenly, culture is born. If God did not judge the people at Babel, we would not have that. We would have one language, one tradition, and life would be boring. So that's the first beauty, and we're going to come back to that, but the first beauty to come out of this is that culture was born on that day. But the second thing, and the better thing to come out of God's judgment at Babel, is that suddenly the God who had to come down begins dwelling with mankind once again. And so before I explain how we see that in this passage, if you have some time today, or even right now, just if you have your Bibles open, flip over to Genesis 10. Because you'll notice what is said probably as your header is it's called the table of nations. And so what we see there is how Noah's descendants spread across the earth. And we get all of our different nations and all our different cultures and all our different languages out of that one chapter. How is Egypt formed? We can trace it back to Noah. And the question is, why is that the case? Because if everyone spread in Genesis 11, how can Genesis 10 be all the birth of culture in all these different um, nations? And the answer is because Genesis 10 actually comes chronologically after Genesis 11. So why is that the case? Why, when Moses is writing this, would he show us the table of nations and then reverse time to show us how those nations came about? Well, if you continue Genesis 11 to the end of the chapter, and then into Genesis 12, you'll notice it's because Moses wants to focus on one thing, the line of Abraham. He gets out of the way. This is where everybody went. But the purpose of the Tower of Babel is to show us God dwelling with mankind again because suddenly we jump into Abraham, and through Abraham comes Israel. Through Abraham and Israel come God spending time with man again, comes him dwelling with mankind permanently in the temple, and most importantly comes Jesus. And so you see, we might be tempted to look at this passage and to think it's just about God's cultural mandate or it's just about God's judgment. And those things are true, but ultimately Babel is not about the birth of culture, for as wonderful as it is and for as much as we see it here, it is not about the birth of culture. It is ultimately about paving the way to bring back in all the cultures, just not under the fake King Nimrod, but under the true King, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And so that's the story of Babel. That's what we see there. Mankind has rebelled against God this time instead of destroying them. He judges them, and in his judgment, he blesses them. But that's, again, just the beginning of this, right? It occurs in Genesis 11. There's a a long way to go in our Bibles. And it wouldn't be a fun story if it just ended there with God's judgment. But the good news for us today is that when we flip forward to the New Testament, we can see God actually finish the story he began here. And the way he does that is through a little baby in a manger. Now, again, we just said that the two things that come out 
of the judgment at Babel are culture and God beginning to dwell with man again. And both of these things are realized in that little baby. Because as we're told, this baby is the word of God. The very word that created everything that we see, the very word that created the people that we see, and the very word that judged and scattered the nations at Babel became a man. And that man grew up, he took all our sins, he nailed them to the cross in his body. And so when we look at him, we ask, how in the world does he complete our story? Well, there's several ways. First, at Babel, the Lord was so removed from the people that they couldn't find him that they had to go to Nimrod, that they had to build this tower. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Not only that, but Christ was lifted high so that while the people at Babel wanted to reach the heavens in Jesus, you and I have access to the throne room of God. And while at Babel they wanted to make a name for themselves, at the cross Christ gave us the names sons and daughters of the living King. You see, God didn't just judge mankind and make many different cultures and leave them to be. The real reason he judged the people was so that he could make two families out of those many cultures. The family of man and the family of God. And the family of God, of course, is the church, and the church sees the bringing back in of all the different cultures of all the judged to find unity and salvation in Jesus Christ. That's how the baby completes the story. But if that's not clear, let's go further into this because we can see this specifically play out in Acts 2 and Pentecost. If you're familiar with the story, you know that this occurs right after Jesus' ascension and a vast amount of nations are coming together to celebrate the Old Testament feast of the Pentecost. And so all these Jews from all these different nations, I think if you go into the scriptures, you can count at least 15 there in Acts 2. And what happens is that suddenly the Spirit of God enters into the room, falls on the disciples, and they begin speaking so that everyone in their own language and in their own tongue can hear and understand. And what's being told to us there is that everything that was pulled apart at Babel was put together at Pentecost through Christ. Where man's language was confused at Genesis 11, it was unconfused in Christ at Acts 2. Where man was scattered under the watchful eye of the Tower of Babel, the nations were brought back in under the bleeding and the broken figure of Jesus as he hung on the cross. And so you see, ultimately, Babel shows us God's plan for redemptive history. Why did he do that? Why did he judge the nations? Why was culture born? Why did we have all of this happen? It's because he's sending out the people over the earth to gather the nations in to his family. If not for Babel... We would have no church, and we would have no cross. And you see, that's so, what's so wonderful about Christianity, and that's so wonderful about our message, and that's so wonderful about the church, is that the gospel does not depend on any culture. It transcends culture. It does not depend upon stance. You see, the people needed to band together under one culture, under one nation, but God brings everyone together. The only thing that our message depends upon is the blood and the body of Christ and the reigning of our God. There's only one religion, one faith in this world that transcends culture, that expels the bad and takes the good, that adapts with the times, and that is Christianity, and it keeps its core message sure always. It is Christ and him crucified. No other religion on earth can do that. If you look at Islam, it's freeze-framed in 622 A.D., 
If you look at Buddhism, it's freeze-framed at the time of Buddha, which is roughly around the time of Christ. If you look at any religion, they will all fade, they will all die, or they will seek to bring us back into the time when they were created. It is Christianity alone because of the Tower of Babel that transcends every culture because the reason that God spread mankind was not to create different cultures but to show us how he is God over all of them. He is God over everything. He is Lord over all. He spread us so that we wouldn't look to each other for hope but that we'd look to him for hope. That's why S.G. de Graff says the outward unity at Babel is torn down to make room for true unity in Christ. What we see at Babel is that our fleeting family of man was shattered specifically so that God could begin working in us individually and give us an everlasting family in Christ Jesus our Lord. So before we leave, we ask this. Why is it important to look at a passage like this today? And the answer is because this is the day that we remember when the world went to war. And this is the day that we pray for the persecuted church. And so what Babel tells us, what Jesus tells us, what God tells us is on days like this, never forget that what unifies us is not our culture, not our goals, not our language, but only the blood of Christ Jesus. We here in this room have the answer to that which causes the war to go to world with each other. We have the only king to rival the likes of Nimrod. And so how do we go forward? How do we bring this into the world? Well, again, we started off by saying that the cultural mandate was given in the Garden of Eden. It was then given at the time of the flood. And we think with the birth of cultures that the cultural mandate was kept, and in a lot of ways it was. But before Jesus was ascended, he gave it to us one last time. But this time he tweaked it, and he changed it for us. Because you, you see, again, Babel saw man cover the face of the earth to do what God had created us to do. And so instead of the Lord Jesus Christ coming and saying, here's your mandate again, have children and spread, he says, no, 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 I've brought in everyone. I've brought in different cultures. I've transcended everything. Go and have spiritual children and spread the gospel over the face of the earth. This mandate is found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. There he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. What is the Lord Jesus saying? You are a new people. You are a new family. I have brought you back together. What was judgment at Babel has now become blessing in Christ. Go now and bring others into this family. The family of man was torn down so that you and I can build up the family of God. And so as you go about doing that, use Babel to remind you that God's plan includes everybody. It includes all people, no matter their stance, no matter socioeconomic status, no matter where they are in this world, it includes everyone. Because we might be tempted to think, and I think the church does this, that it's Bethel here that unifies us, or it's Lacombe that unifies us, or Alberta that unifies us, or Canada that unifies us. But what Babel is telling us is, no, we're wrong. It's the blood of Christ. He alone unifies us. And so what that means is that because of the cross, because of Babel, you and I are as connected to that Christian sitting in a jail cell in North Korea as you are to the person sitting next to you here. Don't forget them. Pray for them. 
Spread the news to your neighbor. Spread the news of the true king, the only one that heals our affliction, the only one that offers the deep desires of our heart that could not be found at Babel. Isaiah 11.10 says this, In that day, that being the day of the cross, the day of Pentecost, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all people. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. What we read in Revelation 5, 9 is that when everyone, we see Christ being hailed as king at the end of time and we get concentric circles, everyone close to the throne celebrates, then all the angels celebrate and then it's every tribe, nation, language, and tongue that celebrates. You see, the world may go to war, but every nation, language, and culture can rally to Christ. So spread the news and pray for those who are dying and persecuted for their faith. Regardless of where they come from, understand that culture doesn't matter. They can be part of God's family. Once again, he tore apart the family of man to begin building his own family at Babel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you give us, but we thank you specifically for that message because it's so easy to go to our homes and to think on our parents or our children or our siblings or our cousins and to think this is what makes me uniquely me. This is what gives me purpose and meaning. But what you've taught us at Babel is that that's not the case. What you taught us at Babel is that there's no unity in mankind. There's no hope in mankind. You stand expressly against that. You want us to look to you. And so, Lord, as we sit here in our church and the comforts of our, of our Canada and our North America where we don't face war, where we don't fear persecution, help us to remember the connection we have to those overseas. Help us to remember and to see that regardless of culture, you've created a new family. They are our brothers and sisters. They are what define us through Christ. Help us never to forget. Help us never to forget those who have laid down their lives to buy us freedom here in Canada. Help us to honor them. But let us all the more then honor the one who bought us freedom for eternity. So that one day all of us here will worship together the name of the true king, not Nimrod, not at the Tower of Babel, but the Lord Jesus who hung at the cross and now stands at the center of the throne. Glory be to your name and your name alone. And in that name we pray, amen.